Welcome to the Direct Examination Podcast. My name is Amber Fulmer. And I'm Dane Phillips. He's I'm Joseph Diaz. <laughs> We've only done the same thing, no the same entry each time. I thought she was switching it up. This, this is how y'all know that it changes every single time. Before we get started this evening, we just wanted to thank y'all so much for your support. Um, we've been very overwhelmed at the response that we've gotten on social media and your downloading and listening to our podcast. And none of this would be possible without your support. So we greatly appreciate um, all the feedback that you've given us. Please continue to do so. Uh, we have a huge um, upcoming schedule for y'all. We have some special guests that we'll be announcing, so please follow us on our Facebook, Twitter pages, and other social media uh, accounts for uh, some upcoming guests and some exciting content. So before we um, move on, we just wanted to say thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And I will now hand it over to Dane Phillips, who's going to introduce our guest for Th- today. Thanks, Amber. Our guest today is one of the most notable figures in South Carolina, both as a lawyer and a politician and his role in South Carolina politics. Uh, Notably, he started his career as a prosecutor in Richland County, uh, and of course his career in private practice, as well as the Democratic chairman uh, for several years and now running as the Democratic nominee in South Carolina District 20. We're going to kind of highlight his career, not only as a prosecutor prosecuting Pee Wee Gaskins as one of his... uh, perennial and most notable cases uh, that uh, certainly has, we could sit here for probably over an hour and talk stories that he's had from his battles with Jack Swirling as the prosecutor in that case, and as the long uh, running uh, Bridge the Gap, which is unfortunately no longer around, that you and Jack would do a lot of the stories from uh, from that trial, and I hate that young lawyers are not able to, to, to experience that. With that being said, uh, we'd like to kind of roll directly into our first topic. You're going to take who it is? It is Dick Hartpootlian, <laughs> the one and only Dick Hartpootlian. Uh, Welcome, Dick. Thanks for doing Thank you. Thank you for having me. So our first topic is your career as a lawyer. You started uh, certainly as a prosecutor and mm-hmm. then worked your way all the way up through the election to be the prosecutor in Richland County and then into private practice with Jack Swirling, and then ultimately I believe you had a firm with Joe McCullough and Jack at one point. Correct. And then, again, you went out after your kind of career between being a prosecutor and some of the other uh, political elections that you ran, opening up your own firm. Right. And so with the high-profile cases that you've been into and transitioning from not only being known as a criminal defense attorney, but also what you're probably more known now as the civil litigation, the class action uh, lawyer, uh, what high-profile cases, what as a career that you would like to uh, discuss with our listeners? Well, I think um, to understand how I began is to sort of understand um, why I got into the practice of law. And, and uh, you know, I never really wanted to be a lawyer and never really wanted to be a prosecutor. Um, and it just sort of serendipitously happened in the summer of 1974, I and several other folks had gone to Clemson with me had founded in what they call an underground newspaper called Osceola. I was going to law school, um, and Osceola was sort of a liberal investigative rag, um, uncovered a bunch of uh, uh, stories about spend, government spending and, and legislators. And one day this guy showed up in our office. His name was Jim Anders, and he was running against a 20-year incumbent solicitor named John Ford, who we didn't like because of his uh, prosecution of uh, 
a bunch of folks who were involved in an anti-war coffee house. I helped Anders with his campaign that summer, um, and he won. He beat this 20-year incumbent in the June primary. I took the bar in November, um, and Anders said, look, why don't you come work for me? I said, man, you know, I don't want to be a pig. I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to prosecute people. That's not... But I had student loans, and he offered to pay me. I was going to go to work at legal aid for $8,200 a year. He offered me $10,200 a year. It was an easy choice. And so um, um, I got sworn in in January of 19, January 15, 1975. And my first day in, um, uh, uh, the senior prosecutor there, um, there were only five assistants in Richmond County. I was one of them, said, uh, you ever tried a case before? I said, no. He said, uh, well... I'm fixing to pick, pick an armed robbery jury upstairs. How about come on up um, and sit in with me and, and uh, you know, you get a sense of how this works. So we went up and he said, here's the indictment. Go read it to the jury. That's called po introduce yourself and publish it to the jury and that'll take over. So I got up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, jury, my name's Dick Harpulian. Let me read this indictment to you. This is my first trial. I'm going to be assisting. And he was gone. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an old, mean judge named um, Morrison from Georgetown. And I said, Judge, I need a recess. No, call your first witness. Won the case um, and nervous and about threw up several times. But um, at the end of the day, I, enjoy, I found I enjoyed trial work. It was incompetent. I didn't know how to get a gun into evidence. I didn't know what an objection to hearsay was, but I figured it out. And by August of that year, I tried my first death penalty case. So, and, but, but, but back then, um, death penalty, the, 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 the penalty for any murder was death unless the jury recommended mercy. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, that was pre-Furman versus Georgia, so that's the law that was struck down by the United States Supreme Court. Right. Um, but uh, we picked a jury on Monday morning at 10, and he was sentenced to death at Tuesday morning at 11. I, we didn't know any different. And back in the old days, we been executed within 30 days. But um, that case, a guy named State versus Thomas Earl Rogers was the case. Our Supreme Court applied the Furman case in and did away with the death penalty for those cases. And then they passed a new death penalty, bifurcated death penalty. And I did a bunch of those later on uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. Which ultimately led to you prosecuting Pee Wee, Pee -wee Gaskins. Gaskins. Right. And and you're right, Jack and I went against each other, and that took eight weeks. Um, and there's a million stories that come out of that. Pee Wee was serving 10 life sentences. <clears throat> His death, previous death sentence had been commuted because of Furman. He was serving 10 life sentences, eligible, eligible parole in 10 years back then. Um, and he took a contract to blow a guy up on death row. Uh, the son of the people that guy had killed, named Tyner, his name, the dead guy, the inmate was Tyner. Tony Simo was the guy that hired him. Smuggled in a quarter pound of C4 explosive and Pee Wee blew his head off. So uh, that case took eight weeks because just to get a jury took over four well, I'd actually, as a criminal defense attorney, I'd like to get your thoughts on the fact that we do not have attorney-conducted voir dire in South Carolina. And since that was, jury selection was the main reason why that case drug out, and while pretty much in South Carolina, by Friday, you're going to have a, a verdict on a murder case, you know, in most Well, in, well, in a death cases. penalty case, you still get voir dire. Oh, right. In, but, but, but any other case, any no, other you don't case. get voir dire. Um, and I've tried cases in North Carolina where they get voir dire on every case. Right. So... But the, the problem was, uh, Mr. Jury, you ever heard of Donald P. W. Gaskins? Yeah, what do you know about him? Largest mass murder in the history of the state. Well, <laughs> could you put that aside and base your verdict on the fact, and if they could get past that, if you found him guilty, would you automatically give him death? Or would you cons Could you consider life? Um, and then, so, I mean, we had to go through 
hundreds, hundreds of jurors. And then, you know, the case was pretty straightforward. It was um, he tape recording of him, tape recorded the conversations with he and Simo. He tape recorded it, told him how he was going to do it, um, and get me the C4, and, I'll, you know, won't be no coming back from that. So it wasn't a difficult case to get a conviction on. I mean, I get all this credit. It was a slam, as we say. <laughs> Just um, needed to get the jury picked and get it in the yeah. Right, and he didn't want to do anything reversible because he didn't, I mean, it's a death penalty statute was totally new, and but it's, you know, um, it stuck, and he was executed in 91 after I'd been elected solicitor in 90, so um, I was there for trial, and there, I mean, I didn't go to the execution, but he um, tried to have my daughter kidnapped about two weeks before his execution, and, and while I never really bore Pee Wee any sort of an affable little guy, that sort of crossed the line, and uh, so so uh, she was four years old. Tried and, and tried to get his son to kidnap her, and um, the son went to a friend and tried to enlist him, and he went to the sheriff of uh, Florence County, Billy Barnes, and uh, so we lived with a guard for two weeks until they executed Pee Wee. But um, you know, the 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 Gaskins case was an important case, and I get a lot of notoriety for it. But there were so many other cases that, uh, as a prosecutor, um, in which there wasn't that kind of coverage, and there wasn't that kind of notoriety. And 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 as a as a solicitor, a prosecutor, it's not just the cases you convict somebody on; it's the cases you decide uh, that you can't prove them beyond a reasonable doubt, and you don't go forward. I mean, a solicitor is there to do justice, right? The not, minister of justice, minister, right. not not to get a conviction, not to get a notch. Now, when you start out as a twenty six year old, it's about getting convictions, and you need somebody with a little more wisdom than you to caution you on that. I tell my law clerk all the time that there's nothing more dangerous than a 25-year-old prosecutor. Right, because uh, he or she, they just want to get a notch on that. I, I got a conviction. It's not about getting convictions. Um, I mean, and, you know, I was re I'm reading a book right now, The Last Trial of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I don't know if you read it or not, but um, by Dan Abrams. Lincoln tried 2,000 cases. People don't realize that. Defended 70 murder cases. Um, did rapes, armed robberies, defense work. He also was a prosecutor back then. You could flip back and forth. And he did a bunch of civil cases. And uh, Lincoln's approach to the law is much what I try to do, which is I could prosecute, I could defend. It's not, you know, these lawyers who say, oh, I could never defend somebody, or I could never prosecute somebody. You're a lawyer. <laughs> you okay? You got to be able to, and in England, by the way, if you're, you know, you're a, 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 a barrister with an in a court, one day you're the queen's lawyer, the next day you're defending somebody. And that's because this is not about how you feel. Mm -hmm. Do you have to be convinced of your client's innocence to represent them? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And likewise, as a prosecutor, you should believe that you can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Not that you think he's guilty or, or you think this or you think that. And you shouldn't not call a witness or not disclose evidence that might harm your case because you want to win. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are too many prosecutors out there that want to win, and too many defense lawyers that will cheat to win. Um, and, you know, that's cheating. Once you start doing that, then you're not really a lawyer anymore. Dick, what in particular drew you to trial, other than paying off the student loans, what keeps you doing trial work in particular? Oh, it's the most fun you can have with your clothes on. <laughs> it's, I mean, I've been doing, I've tried hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases, um, criminal and civil. It is telling a story. That's all a trial is, is telling a story from your perspective. If you're prosecuting, you're trying to explain 
or, or by the way, a plaintiff's attorney is very much like a prosecutor. A uh, plaintiff's case is you've got to prove your case beyond a preponderance of the evidence. By the preponderance of the evidence, the uh, state has to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, and it's telling a story, It's and it's about people. You know, I talk to a lot of young law students, uh, a lot lawyers that, that are not, they don't, I talked to a public defender not long ago that was getting ready to try a case, and I said, who are your witnesses? He told me. I said, have you been out to see them? What do you mean? Have you gone to where they are? Have you talked to them in their homes? Have you interviewed them in a way that gives you a sense of what the truth is? I took a pro bono murder case a couple of years ago, and we, I mean, this guy that works with me, Chris Kenny, never done a criminal case. Great, great lawyer. Um, and we went out into some of the tougher parts of Columbia <laughs> and interviewed witnesses out there. And the greatest new device in my 40 years, 40-something years of doing this, is the smartphone. Because you can interview them and then say, hey, you know, do you mind if I get this on video? And 99% will say, not a problem. So let's say you go, in this murder case, we interviewed the state's witnesses, got videotape statements from them that, was, that were inconsistent with their written statement in very key ways. And, you know, you don't have to turn that over to the prosecutor. Right, it's impeachment evidence. Right, so you just wait and use it to impeach them. And, I mean, it's a d tremendous device. Um, <laughs> so, but I went out and interviewed every one of those witnesses, where they lived, in their homes, in their place of work. Now, if you have them brought down to the courthouse by some investigator, um, it's they're not. I mean, it's just, they're not going to be comfortable. Talk to them in their homes. Talk to them out in the front yard, um, and that's more work. Um, but it's a real it, lawyer. Real, but you know that case, we got an eleven to one not guilty, um, and they dismissed the case ultimately. So it paid off. Sixteen-year-old kid charged with murder. So um, my, my point is this: it is a. It is not. If you want to, you know, nine to five, uh, you know, close loans or do something, go to tax school. But um, this is about people, and you've got to make judgments about how is that witness going to play in front of a jury? Can I cross them? Can I break them? Can I make them cry? Um, or if they're your witness, can will they hold up? Um, so, I mean, and that's those are people skills. And that's what's great about trying cases is it's all about people. And I've had juries that, that uh, got, I made you know, made them angry or they cried or, I mean, it's, you know, you get 12 people in a box. You got to work them. You got to work them. You know, I, you know, when I'm in a, questioning a witness, I'm looking at the jury. How are they reacting? I tried a case up in uh, Greenville a few years ago, bad faith case against an insurance company wouldn't pay off on an arson case. They offered zero money. And they had some guy out of Houston who was just, you know, had five paralegals and all this PowerPoint and Three assistants it was me and one assist, one one young lawyer with me, and all our stuff was on poster boards, and they offered us zero money. They ne this guy ne all he did was look at the PowerPoint, never looked at the jury. Jury gave us fifteen million dollars. <laughs> Rock and roll. There you go. So it was, but because the jury liked me, I looked at him, got got looked him in the eyes when I'm making a point. You know, this guy's lying. Or, you know, I'm oh really? I'm talking to them, right. not the witness. Um, and this guy had no skills. so He couldn't I, make a human connection with the jury. Couldn't make a human connection, and, you know, you got to be careful about how you do that. But, but and of course, in North Carolina, I, was, I tried a case up there. Sitting uh, down. Right? Sitting down, can't work the jury. It's, it's, now, you can if you're handing a document. You can approach and hand the document. <laughs> work the, so I just waited. I had 10 documents. I waited. 
every time. Wake out of work, work, and work and work the work the jury rail. But it's all about read this book about Lincoln because a lot of what he says now. The, the amazing thing about the Lincoln book is back then there were no transcripts, except he hired a stenographer for this case, and so every, everything's verbatim. His questions, the answers, all of it. So you really see Abraham Lincoln as a criminal defense lawyer and how he dealt with people. It's amazing. Best book I've read, trial book I've read uh, in a long time. Well, they got another copy sold as far as I'm concerned. Dan, Dan Abrams, Amazon, NBC uh, correspondent, wrote it. He can uh, send us some money and sponsor the podcast. <laughs> exactly. But all it's right. an excellent book. All right. So with all of that and your storied trial career, why in 2018 run for office? What? What? Why, that's, why? That's, okay, that's a great question. Yeah. Let me sort of explain it to you as a as a as a as a a process that began uh, probably a year and a half ago when I began. I've lived in the same neighborhood for forty one years, up on top of Wheeler Hill, uh, Saluda Hill. Um, I lived in one house. We built another house, but um, and over those forty one years, Carolina has been a great neighbor. Okay, went back when there were fifteen thousand students or twenty students, five points had six bars or five bars, and they weren't these huge, cavernous, concrete-floored, drinking, I mean, just doing shots kind of place. But over the last 10 or 15 years, on some nights, there'll be 2,000 kids in the street, drunk, screaming, and they come through our neighborhood, and they make noise, and they throw up, and they pass out. So um, we tried to get the city to repeal its 2 a.m., because that's when most of the havoc and we got pushback from the bars down there. So I did what a lawyer does. I went to the books and found that to sell liquor by the drink, you have to your your business has to be primarily and substantially in the business of selling food. And they're not. The one we shut down was doing five percent. We just litigated another one that did five between five and four or twelve percent. And we're gonna win every one of those. You found the Achilles heel. I found it. And so uh, we've put we just filed uh uh, objections to six bars seeking relicensing, proposing some folks that want to go into the old uh, roost, which we shut down. Um, we're going to oppose them, and it's going to be um, a slog, but, you know, that's what we do. So, it, it, to back up a little bit, the process, we got no support from the city government. We got no support from Department of Revenue. And I said, what's wrong with government? Here's the law. The law says primarily substantially, and they said, we don't know what that means. We got a 1978 decision by the Supreme Court about what it means. Now they have a decision from an ALJ about what it means. And they still won't do anything. So I... uh, And that was just a few months ago that you won that hearing, right? Right. Maybe six months ago? Yeah, before the seat became vacant. I'm talking about Corson's seat. I wasn't going to run for the Senate. I mean, I've made a couple bucks. I was planning on spending August in Aspen, where it's... High of 73 and a low of 48. <laughs> a little different than South Carolina. A little different. Yeah. And I, we've been going up there for two weeks every summer for several years, and it's wonderful. Um, but when Corson Seat became vacant, uh, I was angry. And look, the more I look at government in South Carolina, the more I realize it's a fraud. They're not doing their job. They're Most of them are trying to milk the system for their own. I'm talking about legislators. Um and look, this isn't a career for me. I've already had a couple of careers. I've been on county council. I've been the elected solicitor. I've been chairman of the party. Um, this is not something I'm doing for the long term. I won't be there long enough to have any seniority. And certainly not for the money. 
The twelve thousand dollars a year. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No, I mean I'm donating that. Um, I'm not going to draw per diems, um, which is ludicrous. Two hundred bucks a day per diem for me. I live. I can walk to the state house from my house. I mean, it's just it's just horrible. These people want the session to go on longer so they can get their two hundred bucks a day. Um, and you know, and they want their thousand dollars a month and in district expenses. I mean, you add up what they get; they're making more than a school teacher. And that's ludicrous. That is ludicrous because a school teacher actually contributes to society. These (laughs) yahoos, I don't know what they do, but we're going to find out. My wife's a school teacher and her mother's a school teacher, so trust me, we can get on that platform. Okay, so (laughs) school teachers are making 20% less in South Carolina than they are in Georgia. In School District 1, I read in the paper the other day, 30 or 40 foreign teachers are having to be recruited to come in because we can't hire uh, teachers from South Carolina. There's a freaking billboard on number one saying, if you have a teacher's license, call. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. We don't pay them enough. The working conditions suck. They don't get respect. You know, it's fascinating to me. And, you know, work with police and still see them. I have a bunch of policemen that are friends, sheriff's deputies and police. We take the folks we entrust our kids to. We don't pay them worth the crap. And then we take the people we entrust our safety to, and we don't pay them worth the crap. Most teachers and most cops have to work a second job to make ends meet. Okay? Now, really, really, that's that's where we put our priorities. Okay? Legislators, however, part-time employees get a retirement system better than teachers. They actually make more money than teachers. And they're engendered some respect. You know, somebody wants to call me senator. That's an honorific. That means you, you've done something to deserve that honor. Well, getting elected is not honorable. Not in and of itself. Not in and of itself. That doesn't get you anything. You've got to do something. And so I'm hopefully going to be able to challenge, and already I'm getting, you know, comments from uh, uh, senators uh, who I've known and just say, you know, you're not, don't come up here and rock the boat. You're not going to make, you know, there's a system, we like it, it's here. Well, I don't care, okay? So I'm not there to get seniority, and I'm not sure I'm there to get much past. What I'm there to do is point out the fallacies in the system that prevent things from happening. If you strip away all the uh, all the money that they get, all the favors they're doing for their friends and lobbyists, the uh, the Baseload Review Act, who read it? Nobody read it. Okay. Our first guest was Mike Kasky, who's a new legislator, uh, and he he went over all that. So the people who listen to the podcast are actually familiar with the Baseload Review Act. So so, and that's I mean that's just the one that we all got spanked on. There's a bunch more that gets passed. Act 388 that, that repealed property taxes to support schools. Um, Charleston Post and Curry described it as the worst economic disaster to hit South Carolina since Hugo. Okay? Under the radar. Um, nobody read it. Um, and, I mean, it's just over and over and over again. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read everything. I'm going to try to insist everybody read every piece of legislation. Maybe, you know, we could get bills on tape. And people, <laughs> legislators, could listen to it to and going to and from uh, the legislature. I mean, but you know, you start talking about most of this stuff, and their eyes glaze over. It's you know, well, Joe Blow, the lobbyist with X, has explained to me what it'll do. Well, why don't you read it? Because it may not do what that lobbyist who's getting paid money to tell you what it does. Not that lobbyists are bad people; they're advocates. I'm an advocate, but but they've got an axe to grind, just like. Anybody, they're getting paid to take a position. To 
go back to the five points that you read briefly. What what can you do or can communities do, not only for the bar, but it, 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 the bars, it sounds like USC may need to bear some of this responsibility as well. Do you envision having any conversations or we making have. any actions with USC? We've talked to them. We've talked to them. They, they, they were one of the, uh, they came in with us to oppose the rooftop bar. Uh, I think they're going to help us uh, in opposing others. I think, you know, this is this sort of a story of un, un, unintended consequences. A, a girl who was shot and paralyzed several years ago named Martha Childress, and she was waiting for an Uber to take her back. So the university said, look, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to have buses come and go um, so that kids don't, aren't exposed to that. Well, here's the problem. There was a study done last year by USC. Um, 80% of the kids going to Five Points are going at 10 o'clock or later, so they're not going for a meal. And they're under 21. So if they're not going to eat and they're being taken down there, delivered in mass, they're going there to drink. So, you know, we've got the unintended consequence was USC is contributing to the problem. And and we'd like them to reconsider. But maybe they ought to have to be 21 to get on the bus. That, that was my follow-up. So I didn't realize anybody could get on the bus. Absolutely. And by the way, last year, 260 kids from USC went to the emergency room for alcohol poisoning. Okay. Something like 70% of them were under 21. And of that 70%, the vast majority said they'd had their last drink in five points. So, look, this is clearly uh, the business model for most of those bars is illegal. Serving underage kids, serving after 2 a.m., um, and a whole variety, you know, and a whole variety of things. And not serving food or not serving fruits is not their substantial primary business. I didn't write, that's a constitutional amendment. That's not a law, statute. That's a constitutional provision. Right. That's unequivocal. Yes. And there's case law in point. Yes. So the last thing that we want to go into before we get to kind of our wrap-up, what we call the cross-examination, uh, if you wanted to touch it, is uh, public corruption. <laughs> sure I know that's part of it. Okay. So, you know, when I was solicitor, um, I prosecuted a number of public corruption cases, including the president of USC, Jim Holderman. Two out of the three ABC commissioners uh, I prosecuted for public corruption. We um, brought environmental cases, which aren't necessarily public corruption, but people that have buried stuff. So, uh, look, if what I've, if no one's looking, okay, if you've got a teller at a bank that puts five bucks in their pocket and nobody ever says anything, then she, she or he is going to begin a pattern of stealing from you. Well, nobody's looking at, at uh, I mean, look at the legislature with the Quinns and all these other legislators. Uh, John Corson. Two hundred and something thousand dollars laundered through the Quins to him. Um, so there's got to be some transparency and scrutiny. So I helped fund and found a group called Paper. Nobody ever looked. Once the records were made public, newspapers began looking. The federal government began looking, um, and so it's all about transparency. And so the way you defeat corruption is make things transparent. They say it's the best disinfectant, right? Sunlight. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and legis the legislature uh, is, by the way, the only state entity that's not subject to the Freedom of Information Act is the legislature. When they passed the bill, they exempted themselves. Of course they did. And convenient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. This is when we're getting to the cross-examination portion of our podcast. And we 
kind of already went through why you wanted to be a lawyer or how you got down there. Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can do God. My question is, when you mentioned uh, early on, you said that there are a lot of cases that you were involved in that didn't get a lot of notoriety, but that were still great cases. So what would you say is the most memorable case or issue that you've worked on as a lawyer that maybe didn't get that public notoriety, but that was special to you? As a prosecutor or as a civil lawyer? Both. Just both. Okay, so... Um, as a prosecutor, uh, I can remember um, prosecuting the case of a, a of a young girl who had been, um, well, you know, back in the 70s and early 80s, we didn't have the sensibilities we have now about sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, if we, you know, the old saying was, he said, she said, it's not a case. Mm -hmm. And this young girl was so adamant um, about what had happened to her. Um, and it was really just, I mean, there's no physical evidence, no DNA. I mean, we didn't have all that. No rape protocol, um, no trauma. Um, Pure credibility case. That's all. And most of them were. This was a, when I say young girl, she was 13. Mm -hmm. And it was the, uh, uh, it was the maintenance man um, in her apartment complex. And of course, again, we had none of the scientific evidence we have now. I mean, none of those, none of that. So again, he said, she said. And so you really had to put, you had to do tough cross-examination on him and get him to cross himself up. Um, and, you know, and, and ar the argument to the jury is just, it's got to be emotional. You got to get him going. You got to get him crying. And we convicted that guy. And, um, um, you know, there's nobody in the courtroom for that. Um, and, uh, I did another rape case of a guy that was a serial rapist. The jury didn't know that. Uh, he raped a woman at a loan in an armed robbery over here uh, on Sumter street. Um, and we had nothing, nothing that one of the, one of the women, there were three women in the place said, uh, that, uh, he walked the way the guy did. Now we knew, um, that he'd been arrested for a similar rape over it, but, 404 was not developed like it is now, so that didn't come in. You would not hear about that because it wasn't even, I mean, the MO was a little bit different. Um, and we got that conviction. Those are cases where you know the guy did it <laughs> beyond a reasonable doubt just based on that guy and the credibility and the credibility of the woman or the girl. Um, and those are more satisfying than a Pee Wee Gaskins where you've got a tape recording of him telling him how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the notorious cases where, um, you know that that the play the courtroom's packed. Of course, there's nothing like trying a case in a packed courtroom. But um, most of my work was done. The typical homicide case was not um, was not uh, the high-profile homicide case. It was two people that got in an argument over a card game, or um, got drunk and things got out of hand, or husband wife wife husband. Um, and on the civil side, um, I mean, I like taking cases where you get, you know, no offer, um, and you knock it out of the park like the fifteen million. Or I did one down in Allendale; they offered us nothing. And we got three point one million, um, and uh, you know those cases are satisfying because typically you have a client that you know lawyer, other lawyers have turned down, and you take it. Um, and it's you know, and a trial, a trial, is just, I mean, it really, I mean, you, I, I rarely take notes. In a trial, I might fill up two pages of a legal pad because I am the trial. I know the trial. 
like Chevy Chase and uh, Caddyshack. I am the law, right. you know. But but you've got to get that immersed in a case. And once you do it, as long as I have the objections, are almost second nature. They're you're you know whether it's hearsay or leading or whatever. And um, your response to objections is almost second nature because you've used them so many times. You've written so many briefs. You understand it. Um, the only way to do it is to do it. You can't. You're not going to learn it. And unfortunately, our law schools don't teach it. It's like going to med school and never seeing a diver or never operating, never going through a residency where you actually treat people. And all of a sudden, you're on the street. You got a shingle up, and you're supposed to know how to. And by the way, for criminal cases, there's no specialty. You know, you couldn't hold yourself out as a tax lawyer if no. you didn't have a tax degree. There's no spec. Anybody can be a criminal lawyer. And based on what I mean, I've done three PCRs in the last year and a half. We've won based on ineffective assistance of counsel. So anybody can be <laughs> a criminal lawyer. Well, I can tell you after reviewing uh, transcripts of appellate defense, PCR transcripts, and doing PCR cases myself, uh, there needs to be more actual lawyering taught in law school. Well, I, and, I mean, you know, the, the young defense lawyer, um, you know, who's second seating a murder case, you don't learn anything second seating. Go down to mattress court and drive, defend or prosecute a DUI. That's what I did. That's how I learned it. Um, That's how I learned it too, actually. <laughs> and, and, by the way, DUI. You've got expert witness, breathalyzer, data master operator. You've got lay witnesses. Sometimes you have, um, uh, you know, a, a, a eyewitness. Um, you've got this, and this is the amazing thing. It's the only case you'll ever prosecute or defend where somebody on the jury has committed the offense. <laughs> you know, nobody that committed a murder is going to be on your murder jury. But it's hard to get a DUI conviction when you're prosecuting. And not that it's easy to get them off, but, but that's where, I mean, six-person juries, you can develop your stick, whatever that is. I mean, you know, you've got to, everybody's got a personality on the way they approach things. And you sharpen your skills. You could do, if I were hanging a shingle up today, I'd go down to mattress court, and the mattress says, some guy stands up and says he doesn't have a lawyer who wants a trial. I say, I do it for free. Okay? <laughs> but because you're going to learn how to do, you're going to learn your skill. You're going to learn uh, how to do this. And uh, I don't see that much anymore. Reps in the back engaged. Mm -hmm. Getting ready. Yep. So as far as our uh, last question that we're going to ask you, and I, I think you've, you've hit on so many different nuggets of this. What advice would you give a young lawyer? But you basically just answered that question. Well, I, Get in there. And... Two things. One, um, do what I just said. Or, um, uh, you know, go down and, first of all, before you volunteer to represent somebody on a DUI, how about go watch one or two, okay? <laughs> Don't just go down there and think you know what you're doing because it ain't easy. For the defendant's sake. Correct. Right. Um, and when I was solicitor, we had a program where we let some of the big firm lawyers send their young lawyers down to prosecute. They loved it because, mm -hmm. you know, if you go to work for one of these big firms, you're not going to see the inside of a courtroom for 10 years. So they loved it. Um, same thing ought to happen on the defense side where, and of course, you know, there's all kinds of lawsuits about uh, uh, pro se defendants in city court and elsewhere being entitled to a lawyer. Well, volunteer to do it. and But after you know what you're doing and go talk. Look, if I was going to go out um, and, and do that, on DUI defense today, I'd go see Legal Venice, who's one of the masters. I'd go see Joe McCullough and say, I'm going to defend this DUI. What do you think? You know, both those guys will give you their time. I get calls from young lawyers, not as much as I used to, 
but you know, 10 years ago, they'd call me and say, I got a murder case. What do you think? Or, um, I've got, you know, this rape case. What would you do? Um, and, uh, or Jack swirling. I mean, Jack is the most, he'll have you come up to the office and meet you for a cup of coffee. He'll tell you what he thinks. And he is so patient, much more patient than me. Um, <laughs> we taught a class together at USC years ago on trial advocacy. And um, at the end of the, the last class, we'd have the final arguments. And Jack would say, well, you know, you need to do this. You need to move that or whatever. And I'd say, tax school. Think about tax school. <laughs> 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 Just be honest. <laughs> Just be honest. You're not. Shoot us straight. That's right. You know. All but, right. Our last, uh, as we wrap up today, our last cross-examination question is going to be a special one because we actually have in this room, we have two USC graduates because you went to Clemson. Undergraduate, You yes. went undergraduate Clemson. So what I'm going to do, we had this request from a uh, listener. Is I'm going to read our two, and I went to Wofford, by the way, so I'm not saying I'm better or worse than anybody. I'm just saying <laughs> it's different, but I'll be the moderator in this case. So I'm going to read to my two USC f- friends slash co-hosts the schedule. And I just want y'all to give me a record for the end of the year, okay? Tell me what USC's record. And then for a tiebreaker, we're going to do the USC Clemson score. I'm going to start Pootley, and since you're here, I'm going to read you the Clemson. Uh, and you want me to t- say who's going to win? Yeah, tell me tell me what Clemson's record is going to be at the end of the year. Uh, how many games they play? 11? It looks like they have 12. 12. 12 zip. All right, 12 That was easy. <laughs> All right, 12 You and, want to give me and, a score and, for the and, USC and, Clemson guy? Um, I mean, it's always closer than it should be. Right. Um, Clemson will score four times, 28. Okay. Carolina will score twice, 28-14. All right. So now that we have Clemson. Ladies Amber, first. We'll start with uh, Amber. USC schedule this year is home for Coastal Carolina, home for Georgia, home for Marshall, at Vanderbilt, home for Missouri, Home for Texas A&M, home for Tennessee, at Old Miss, at Florida, home for Chattanooga, and I really want y'all to win that personally, and then at Clemson. 11 games. 12. <laughs> no, you're, that's 11. 12 games. Should be. Maybe cool. I missed one. I'm going to say we win at least seven. You know, I love my Gamecocks, but I was raised in a Clemson household, and I understand that prayers only go so far <laughs> And I can't say anything bad about Clemson because that's where my entire family went. My cousin Sarah is married to Jeff Scott, so I, I have to wish them the best, but I do really want my Gamecocks to succeed. I would love for them to be the Tigers this year. Um, it was great living in my household when we were on the 5 peak. Um, so it would be nice to bring that back. I do not know if that will happen, but I would love for it to happen. Dane? Well, I'm going to be optimistic and say nine wins for the Gamecocks. Here we go. And I'm going to say that... Do y'all drug test in this? Apparently apparently not. Nine (laughs) wins. Nine wins. Nine wins. Okay. And give me the uh, score, both of you, for the uh, USC Clemson game. I will say 31-28 Gamecocks. Really? <laughs> the drugs are good. Now. <laughs> what about you, Amber? You need to share them. <laughs> because I'm not nearly as optimistic. Um, okay, 21-7. You know, with that. You know, Todd Ellis, a good buddy of mine, mm-hmm. those, the five peak years, horrible. Okay? <laughs> he is unrelenting. 
humiliated me every year. So now that Clemson's doing a little bit better. You don't hear his buzz? I don't see him. He's disappeared. <laughs> just a little bit better? <laughs> and I'll just say for the record, I think Wofford's new coach is going to do a great job this year, and I think we're making the playoffs. So you know that. And with that. How did you? Right. I, obviously, we're. Look, we are the most successful college basketball team in the state in the last 10 years. Just saying. Beat Chapel Hill. So, uh, we want to thank you all for listening to the uh, Direct Examination Podcast. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, at SCLawPod. Same same username on uh, Instagram and Facebook. We want to thank our fabulous producer, Brendy. And you can follow me personally at uh, Joseph P. Bios on Twitter. You can follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer on Twitter and Amber at Red Judicata. So until next week, thanks for listening. And thanks for hanging in there for the longest intro ever without <laughs> me actually saying the guest's name. <laughs> we could edit it out. <laughs> Take care. Y'all.